Welcome to Enough Talk, where we get real about what's happening in California and beyond. It's unfettered, it's unfiltered, it's unapologetic, and it's about time someone said it out loud. I'm Alex Balekian, and I'm putting a voice to your frustrations, placing ideas over identity, and action over talk. You and I met fairly recently mm-hmm. um, in, you know, seeing, we have seen each other um, more and more in different events. This is great for me because me as a physician, me doing what I was always doing, mm-hmm. our paths would never have crossed. And right. so I'm very glad that, um, you know, I've done this foolish uh, endeavor of running <laughs> for Congress. Um, but yeah, please you tell tell us about yourself. Um, let us know. Tell us about Jennifer Van Lar. Okay. So. Um, I'm a Simi Valley native. I grew up there, graduated high school in 1990 as they were building the Reagan Library up on the hill. Then I left to go to Boston University. So, um, and I have the same degree that AOC has, which she's kind of devalued. (laughs) I lived in North Carolina for 20 years where I raised my three sons and then moved back to Simi Valley in 2012. Um, And so the underlying theme of this show and what I will ask you is, what exactly have you had enough of? I have had enough of people saying that we should leave California, that California just needs to fall into the ocean, that's where all the freaks are, and that nothing's ever going to change there. And so to just leave anyone who can and should get out, and if you don't, then you deserve what's happening to you. I, I have heard the exact same thing. I find it completely discouraging, and I completely disagree because this is our home. Exactly. I'm a fifth-generation Californian. I even have my Twitter bio, fifth generation Californian and not leaving. Mm. Because when I go to the Reagan Library and I look out that back on the back lawn and I look at the mountains to the north, like my great grandfather ran cattle on those mountains, those exact mountains. I'm not leaving it. It's they they can leave. The weirdos who've tried to come here, it's not native Californians who are doing all the crap to this. Yes, Gavin Newsom is native, but in general, the attitudes are from the people who come from other places and come to this place and then try to make it into some weird utopia. And if you really look back at the attitudes of native Californians, people who have been here for generations, or even people who have adopted that mindset, it's more of this old West kind of reliance on the land, self-reliance, respect for nature and the land and what it's given us, Mm -hmm. but also innovation and dreams. The people that came here were the people that didn't fit in on the East Coast didn't fit in with those, the caste systems there or the prescribed society that said you can only go this high or you can't try it this way because this is the way we do things. Those are the people that came to California and created Silicon Valley, created Hollywood, mm-hmm. it made the, the Central Valley into this place that really is the world's breadbasket. Yep. And so we have so much so, and, and you know found a way to find gold in mm-hmm. all those hills. And found a way for all these different cultures to be together in a place and be prosperous. And that's, I grew up here in the 80s. 
that's what I grew up with and that's what I want to get back to because to me, that's what California is. It's not this weird stuff that we've been experiencing. And I agree with everything that you said. <laughs> um, you know, yes, I'm Armenian. My parents came here, uh, fled the Middle East, the turmoil of the Middle East in the late 70s and I was born. Um, uh, and yeah, you know, they hit the reset button and placed roots. You know, my dad leased a, a fried chicken joint in San Fernando back when it was nice. still like gang territory. Um, and he would actually give free fried chicken to the cops so they would actually do right, more, right. Hey, know, let's do go more patrols. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, my mother and my, my first distinct memory of childhood was attending night English courses with my mother. I was probably wow. two years old. Wow. Um, and she, you know, that was what California was like. It's like, you were an immigrant, but you were welcome. You were an American. You had the American dream. You assimilated, right? The government didn't get in your way. And also the Armenians who came at the turn of the last century, um, 1890, 1915, they settled in the Central Valley in Fresno, right? They mm -hmm. were farmers who were displaced because of the genocide and they came over and they're like, this looks this looks familiar, right? You know, and just and and uh, assimilated there within that community. And we've actually have some um, Fresno Armenians who have been there for generations who are actually um, strong supporters of uh, my Good. campaign. I probably know a few. Yes, when you we do. Talk off camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and you know, two of my biggest opponents, Laura Friedman, she's from New York, I believe. Anthony Portentino, he's from New Jersey. Right. So these people who came from right. over there, not to say that people from out of state shouldn't come, but, you know, when Laura Friedman is authoring laws in the state assembly mandating the HPV vaccine for every California schoolgirl, mm. when Anthony Portentino is authoring a bill in the state Senate saying that if you as a parent say anything that um, alarms, annoys, or emotionally distresses a teacher or an administrator. It's one of the worst bills I've ever read. SB 596, yep. yes. If you do, if you annoy, alarm, or emotionally distress a teacher or a, a school board member, you get a misdemeanor and a $1,000 fine. Mind you, this is not at a school board meeting. This is on um, social media. So on Instagram, on Facebook, if you make a comment, if I, if there is a, a school board member who says, my pronouns are they, them, and I say, no, you are a single individual. English grammar says, I will refer to you as she, her. If I misgender <laughs> or use the wrong pronouns, that could be a misdemeanor and a $1,000 fine because I don't compel my speech. So these people are these out-of-staters. Again, not to say that out-of-staters are unwelcome because my parents were welcomed and they, you know, they right. live the California dream. But there's, I, I said it during um, the, the Simi Valley talk. I refuse to let this California cancer metastasize mm -hmm. to Washington, and that is why I'm running for Congress, because I want to block these two misguided individuals right. from ruining the country, same as they ruined our state. Good, good. <laughs> and but as we've seen, the cancer is already metastasizing. Victor Davis Hanson was on Tucker the other day mm -hmm. and was talking about how... Um, how we can no longer just think we're going to leave a blue state and go to a red area and get away from things because it, he was speaking specifically at first about just being tracked by Google or by whatever because you're going to be, uh, my car tracks me wherever I go because mm. it's got all of that computerized stuff. So you're going to be found wherever you are. And this stuff is going, you know, the drag queen story hours they had in, in Texas the other day. And I've been told they actually started there. Uh, and I don't have a problem with those kind of things in a private 
place. That'll uh-huh. probably tick off some conservatives watching this, but I'm more libertarian at heart. As am I. And yes. so if if people want to be terrible parents and take their kids to something like that, that's that their, is right their right to be a terrible exactly, parent. Exactly, yes. But I don't want it in a library where it's taxpayer funded, especially if you're not going to allow someone like Kirk Cameron mm-hmm. to come and talk about the values upon which this country was founded, you know, have everyone be able to say things. But anyway, I, it goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, my oldest son, I have a two and a half year old granddaughter. They moved back to North Carolina during the pandemic because of masks and other things. And, uh, but they're out in rural North Carolina, just a little bit outside Fort Bragg. And if anywhere you would think that would be an extremely conservative area, but all this stuff is happening within their County too. So you really can't outrun it anymore it's a mindset that it that's a cancer Mm. and we've got to all stay and fight where we are and to clarify it to people listening at home and this is why we have these long-form conversations in the enough podcast but really the crux of the parents rights movement at least here in glendale is um you know as you said if parents want to raise their children and take them to a drag story event That is on them. That's how they want to raise their kids. I agree with you. I am a libertarian. When you want to arrange public library or school school events where there's a drag queen coming and speaking to all of the children, and not only do the parents not have the right to opt out their children, but the parents are not being informed of the curriculum. Right. And there's this partition that is being drawn. That is the essence of the parents' rights movement here in Glendale and also just throughout the state is this is not, and again, this coming from a gay man who didn't have drag story hour growing up as a closeted gay student and didn't need that to help him figure out his sexuality. I did a just fine. You didn't need a teacher to tell you or help you? I didn't need a teacher to tell me. Neither did my husband when he was in school in the UK. Um, So he and I are... I'm not going to say kind of, he and I are astronomically troubled by the intrusion uh, from the government and also the exclusion of the parents who really are the the bedrock of of any family. Um, And so, you know, the fact that you are excluding the parents and you are making laws like Portantino, SB 596, where if a parent speaks up, they they run the risk of getting slapped to the misdemeanor and a $1,000 fine. That is not okay. That is not the state that we want to live in. And all these people saying, leave the state. No. You know what you can do is send your well wishes, send your contributions. We are staying. We are going to make this better. And then you know what you guys can do? You can move back once it's better. Yeah, and, and it's there are parental rights cases going on in the courts in other states. New Jersey, I know for sure. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple other, I don't want to say the wrong state, but I know I've heard of two or three other states where these parental rights battles and parental notification laws are being implemented, or policies, I should say, if it's a school board policy. Mm-hmm. They're being implemented and then challenged. And so it's not just here where we're having to do this. We're probably facing the harshest backlash from our betters. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say with an air quote, you know, our, our government officials who think they know better. Yeah. Uh, we're probably facing the biggest backlash in this state on that issue. But how, like I said at the rally, it baffles me that we're at a stage where a parent trying to speak out and advocate on behalf of the wellness of their child can be facing criminal charges or is somehow otherwise shut down by government. Mm-hmm. That It's just... If someone sat down, 10-year-old Jen, because I was a policy nerd, I had subscriptions to Newsweek, You Time, still are. 
all of that. Yeah, by the time I was eight, I had these subscriptions. So if someone sat down 10-year-old Jen and said, hey, you know, by the time you're a grandma, if you want to speak out about your granddaughter being harmed at school, you could actually get in trouble with the government. I'd be like, right. what are you talking about? But and, here we are. And, and also, it, this is crazy because I made a video against Laura Friedman's assembly bill to mandate the HPV vaccine. And me, as a physician, as a researcher, uh-huh. I cited uh, the studies from the New England Journal of Medicine, two separate studies from the New England Journal of Medicine, which did not show any decrease in cervical cancer deaths in women who were already getting regular pap smears. So I will, I will say that one more time. The existing scientific literature do not show that the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, mm-hmm. lowered your chance of dying from cervical cancer. No study has ever shown that, that your chance of dying from cervical cancer is decreased if you already get regular pap smears. But Laura Friedman owns stock in four separate pharmaceutical companies, so it would be great for their stock prices and her portfolio. So I put that out there. And then I am labeled as anti-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anti-this vaccine. Uh, but also... And anti-mandates. Exactly. Anti-mandates. Um, and the, there was, thank goodness, it just was repealed. But there was a law that said any medical misinformation right. that a doctor spreads can be um, legislated by the California Medical Board, i.e. me getting my license pulled. Um, so hopefully things are turning, people are coming back to their senses, but it's crazy, as you said, where me as a researcher, I can cite freely available scientific data and still get, um, uh, still get um, threatened right. with having my license pulled. Yeah, and I can't imagine the pressure that parents are feeling at doctor's offices these days because my youngest is 20, and when my oldest was in his teens, I think was when the whole HPV vaccine was coming out yep. and they were recommending it for my teenage boys too. And I'm going, okay, I, I get the theory that mm-hmm. you're telling me of why this could be beneficial, but this hasn't been out very long. And right. I, as a parent, I don't want to give my kid a vaccine that hasn't been out very long. Cause I don't want them being the Guinea pigs on something. And that was 10, 15 years ago. I can't imagine the pressure. And in this state, that parents are under mm-hmm. when they take their kids for these well-child exams. And those pharmaceutical companies have made billions and billions of dollars since that HPV vaccine was approved. Uh, but Laura Friedman, in response to constituent um, comments, didn't stop the law, changed it and said, rather than the state of California requiring, they recommend it for all girls um, who are uh, going to, to school. Two things from my standpoint. Number one, Laura Friedman, who are you? When the American Academy of Pediatrics says, we recommend this, who are you, Laura Friedman, to say, oh, we're going to recommend this? You have no research chops. You have no standing to say this. And we've already talked about how so many superfluous, unnecessary, excessive bills are being introduced that the peop- the elected officials themselves aren't writing them. It's the staffers that do them. So why would you create so much more waste of paper, red tape, et cetera, doing this? That's number one. Number two, me being coming from an immigrant family, there will be immigrant parents who read this that the state of California recommends that you get an HPV vaccine. They will read that thinking 
that their children will not be able to go to school. Their girls will not be able to go to school. So there will still be a large number of non-English speaking immigrant families who give this vaccine to their daughters with no clear mortality benefit simply because Laura Friedman put this terrible law on the books. And this might not be uh, relevant to all this, but do we know what the long-term effects, if there's any long-term negative effects of this vaccine? Um, so we, the, we the, the short answer is no, we don't know. Pharmaceutical companies are supposed to do what are called phase four studies, mm-hmm. where after the drug is approved, after the phase three, um, they are supposed to do phase four studies where it's called a post-marketing survey where they keep track of right. um, you know, uh, side effects, bad outcomes, et cetera, and then report it into the, the FDA. That is not mandatory, and few, very few companies actually follow through with that. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, um, I have uh, two, um, you know, parents, friends, mothers mm-hmm. whose daughters have gotten, I think, the first of, of two shots and have just gotten so ill that they said, I'm not going to do the second shot. Wow. But that's a, that's just uh, right. an anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Believe it or not, I got laid off as an intensive care physician. Wow. For my private practice job. Yes. Um, just because the hospitals were losing money left and right um, because... Yeah, hospital. Well, hospitals everywhere. So they lost money left and right for two reasons. I um, and this this is just me geeking out on healthcare payments. So oh, I, I, that's a huge policy thing of mine. So. It, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So so then hospitals make the majority of their money from elective surgeries, um, because they get the money for it. The patient doesn't stay in the hospital unless there's right. a complication, and they get a large sum of money for it. And then other otherwise, for example, for pneumonia, you go in for pneumonia to the hospital. The insurance say okay. On average, a pneumonia is a four-day stay. So we're going to pay you for four days. Whether or not they. Exactly. Most of my life, I've been self-employed and so paid for my own insurance or sometimes mm. just only mostly had like HSA type, you know, yeah. um, because I've not been sick, thank God. Mm. But well, my last kid, we didn't have maternity insurance. Mm. And so we paid for it out of pocket. Whoa. But- most of the time, they'll give you like a cash discount. And yeah. what was crazy was like, we get the bill after, like from the hospital, and they only billed us the Medicare rate. And like, only? We didn't know that that was like the only. No, that's we the just highest. Got a bill. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, it was whatever it was, it was lower. Like, they had, okay. I guess, like applied me for whatever public assistance yeah. in North Carolina. And so they sent us the bill. My now ex husband like took money out of our equity line in the Whoa. house, like paid it off. Yeah. And then we get a bill for double that amount like a month later. They're like, oh no, we billed you wrong. And, and we're like, sorry, you send us a bill, like a full bill, and we paid it. Like yeah. we're done. And they're like, well, we thought you were going to get approved for whatever assistance and whatever. And, and they're like, okay, these people, like, then like on Head Start and all this crap, like they, that's the rate that the government pays mm-hmm. for them, but mm-hmm. I get to pay for them and yeah. me. Yeah. Like it's it's completely <laughs> it's completely opaque. There's no transparency whatsoever. Yeah, but luckily, like I I worked in for lawyers at the time. I was a court reporter, uh-huh. and I was like, yeah, no, the the attorneys that I'm working with today said I've paid in full, and they're like, oh yeah, okay, you have, we'll leave you alone. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crazy. So Rick Caruso <laughs> made his fortune buying parking lots and then selling them for a profit. Okay, and he bought parking lots and leased them out to car rental places. So, of course, they would use his parking lots, and then it would look very busy, and then he would sell it. The problem is Daddy Caruso started and owned Dollar Rent-A-Car. Ooh. So when we have this talk about Donald Trump, for example, or some other individual 
flattering the value of their assets. Right. Here you have Ricky Caruso buying an empty parking lot, which may be completely worthless, having a car rental place, i.e. daddy. Right. Rent it. Rent it, have positive cash flow, and then sell it to some, some person who doesn't know any better because at that time you couldn't Google it. Right. So Rick Caruso is having Daddy Caruso rent out the places. I don't know if Daddy Caruso kept renting the parking lots for his rental car space or just said, okay, I'm no longer doing this, in which case the new owner was left with a turkey. Right. Um, and also it's a bit more salacious that Daddy Caruso was indicted for fraud. Because I do of, remember hearing that. Right, because of embezzling. So who knows what kind of money may have floated through Ricky Caruso's business to make the parking lots look better so that he could sell them. But that is how that gentleman, through the help of his fraudulent father, a convicted felon, was able to start. Yeah, I do remember that. And then that, Nepo baby. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, everyone forgets that Lori Laughlin's daughter was on his yacht whenever mm. Laughlin was indicted. Yep. And... Uh, yeah, I've long heard about the USC Mafia and all of the things that happen there. And I don't think that someone gets to be the president of the board of trustees without some kind of uh, ability to twist arms. And <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's not just that. And also, I think, so I worked at USC for 10 years, and I was there when not one, but two separate deans of the medical school had to uh, resign right. in, under, under shameful circumstances. Uh, one of them uh, was uh, doing crystal meth with hookers and, um, wow. you know, while he was working. Um, and the other one who took his while place. While he was working? While, while, he, while, while he was a practicing physician. So while he was a practicing physician, dean of the medical school was, you know, d- doing crystal meth with hookers. Um, and then the other person who took his place um, was a gentleman who, um, prior to this, maybe a decade prior, had taken a subordinate to a conference and had strong-armed her into sharing a room with him and tried to make moves. Um, and this was in his file, but it was, I don't know, either conveniently or um, stupidly overlooked. Right. You know, nobody actually did their due diligence when they put him in, in his place. But both men raised a ton of money for USC, for the School of Medicine. And that is why they were where they were, because they raised a ton of money. And my question was, yes, you have Rick Caruso who runs a business, but if you are running a university, a place of higher learning, as a business which forsakes other things, for examples, standards, ethics, are you really doing yourself a favor by casting a pall over everyone who has learned or has worked in the largest private uh, employer in Los Angeles County. Right. And that, that reminded me of the issue of we look the other way a lot of times, we meaning the generic we. Mm-hmm. If someone can raise a lot of money or something like that, we just overlook all, some things that could be pretty terrible character flaws mm-hmm. or things that otherwise negate that. And like Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why 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 do you tell? Because I I mean I know he does really well with fundraising. Um. But what flaws are you talking about? Well, first of all, he does, but it doesn't. He doesn't do it for California. Mm-hmm. So if you look historically over the time since he's really been in power in the in the House, 
it's not translated to funding for the California GOP. It's always teetering on broke. Mm-hmm. LA County GOP is beyond broke, right. which his lieutenants have run for years. Even there was someone that we both know that ran for chair mm-hmm. and against someone who basically had the mental capacity of where Joe Biden is now. <laughs> and and as soon as Kevin found out that there was a younger person who wanted to engage people in register voters, he did a whole drill to make sure that person didn't win. And they lost by one vote because that was the priority that Kevin McCarthy put as his to-do list that day is, oh, make sure someone effective doesn't get elected and don't fund things. I've had times where uh, people that I knew did not get any kind of fundraising done because Kevin had put the word out to not fundraise for them, not because they weren't good candidates or anything like that, just because Kevin wasn't going to do anything. So to me, if, okay, he raises a lot of money nationwide, so what? What's he doing to help his own state? And he's, they've even told people to not donate in California, that it's a losing proposition to donate in California. So to donate to the NRCC so it can be used for races, we can actually win. Right. And at some point, that losing just becomes a, a spiral. Yep. Like you lost before, so nobody wants to put money in. Right. So then you're going to lose even more. And then people turn around, oh, well, you didn't vote for the right things. Well, no one was doing any advertising. No one was getting walkers out to make sure that these people get out to vote. So it's really turned California into what it is today, in large part, thanks to Kevin McCarthy. And so when people get on my case about, I've been tweeting stuff saying, overall, this is going to be good Mm -hmm. for the California Republican Party to have him out of the way. We do need, there's definitely a leadership vacuum, and we need people who are unafraid to stand up and and take that over. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's going to be good to not have that weight around our necks where people are afraid to even run for something because Kevin's going to run someone. I had a, a time last year, a friend had filed for assembly because nobody else was filed to run in the district. I get a call. I'm up in the Bay Area at a speaking engagement. I get two frantic calls. Who do you know that can run in this district? We don't want that MAGA person running. And it's two days before the filing deadline. Okay, people, why weren't you thinking about this before? Now, just because someone that you don't want to be in there, you're going to cause a primary fight. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, it's, and and I'm me speaking from experience, right? The amount of uh, support that I've gotten for my campaign um, has been close to nil. Um, and I, I guess I see it from their standpoint that they see it as a, as a done deal, right? Oh, you are in a D plus 23 district. It's hopeless. You know, and I guess if you make that self-fulfilling prophecy fulfill itself because of your actions, but that is why you know, we're doing something like this with this long-form podcast where we get to people directly uh, despite, or I would say in spite of, you know, in spite of um, the Republican Party. Um, but also, you know, from, from the flip side, you know, one of the central uh, campaign promises, one of the tenets of my campaign is term limits. Mm-hmm. And people like the Nancy Pelosi's, the Mitch McConnell's, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Dianne Feinstein's would be long gone in favor of newer faces so that you don't get this kind of entrenched party politics. Um, and I know um, Matt Gates is definitely getting um, a reputation among the, the news media. But when I read and I said, okay, why is this guy doing this? Why is he raising such a stink? I was pleasantly surprised. Um, to find out about single-subject spending bills. 
Um, and for those people who don't know what single-subject spending bills are, and especially for the Armenians in the audience, single-subject spending bills is um, you don't have to vote on a large omnibus bill, which is what they do right now, where, oh, if you want to keep on funding Medicare and Social Security so that people can actually get their benefits, you also have to vote to give money and military aid to Azerbaijan and Turkey, either all up or all down. Um, and so what, um, and, and that's how you get these um, uh, politicians with their lobbyist friends sliding in mm-hmm. things, because mm-hmm. somebody's going to say, oh my God, how dare you vote no to give children with cancer access to more funds? Oh, why? Because they go ahead and pair it with things that you don't want to do, but because it's an omnibus bill, you have to vote on it. So when I found out that Matt Gates is wants single subject spending bills, so you can give kids with cancer more money, you can keep Social Security benefits untouched while you cut other parts of the budget. And then a separate line item where you say, okay, military aid to Turkey or Azerbaijan. I don't want to give military aid to Turkey or Azerbaijan. You have a single subject spending bill. You vote no, they don't get any money. So I'm happy to support that which Matt Gates is uh, after. Oh, absolutely. And the reason that they don't want to get rid of that, even on our side, is because we use it too. And they want to be able to say, oh, I had to vote for that because of X, Y, and Z. It gives them a reason or an excuse when they vote for crappy stuff. And I, Gates, I think, I don't know that he would make a good speaker, mm-hmm. but I like the role that he's playing in bringing these things out to the public to be discussed because they need to be. And there's also a lot of promises that McCarthy made. I was remembering the other day that uh, he was down at the border, Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy was last year, saying, um, when I get in as speaker, Alejandro Mayorkas, we're going to impeach you. Okay, it's October. Multiple representatives have introduced articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, mm-hmm. and they've gone nowhere. Why? Because McCarthy didn't support them. Right. If, they, if McCarthy wanted to champion those, he could have, and he hasn't. If he wanted to subpoena Hunter Biden, he could have. I know that's a big one. But he also could have uh, done things like try to, inter- to impeach um, Merrick Garland. Mm-hmm. There's definitely reason. That, that would put so much pressure on the Bidens. If the, if uh, if Merrick Garland had to go face Congress in an impeachment inquiry, uh-huh. that would bring so much out. But he just didn't do it, and also just couldn't. He could have done these single issue spending bills starting in January. He could have, and he you he, know he he should have because I think he knew this was coming. He had such a hard time becoming speaker. You should take care of the things that are that the other side is the most angry about mm-hmm. first. Right. And then you disarm them. You disarm their ammunition. But instead, he just ignored them. Um, you know, I saw, and you were there at the, the Law Cabin event, um, mm-hmm. the, where Matt Gates um, was a speaker, and I thought he was going to be this three-headed monster right. um, that people had portrayed him in the news media. Um, I don't agree with everything that he says. However, the man spoke calmly. He wasn't some crazy person uh, coming from another planet, right. which gets me to thinking, because he said, he said, he acknowledged there, he says, AOC and I both wrote, both authored a bill that wants to outlaw stock trades by active members of Congress. And then I got to thinking, the, the news I media also, that. yeah, I, I totally can get behind that. And the news media also portray, the conservative news media portray her as this three-headed monster. So I would just be interested in just getting elected and actually just going and having a talk with her as a real person mm-hmm. and saying, you know, what is it that you're about? 
you know, finding out that she's not a three-headed monster, not that we're going to agree on everything, but yeah, somebody who with Matt Gates says, I want to author a bill that will outlaw, you know, Nancy Pelosi stock right. trades while they're still in Congress. I could totally get behind that. And I think 99% of regular non-career politicians would also get behind that. Right. Because when do we get that? When do we get that opportunity to make stock trades when we have inside knowledge about what's going on in government? Never? Never. Never, never. Yeah. And how all of these people who get a, I think, $174,000 salary as House members, how their net worth is just right. gin- it's curious, ginormously up isn't there. It? I mean, it's one thing if you come in rich, but it's another thing if during your tenure there, you suddenly develop. Right. Or if you have a spouse that is someone, you know, Feinstein legitimately yes. came across a lot of her wealth because of what her husband did. Now, but he was. But did he also benefit from her inside knowledge? Right. Yes, he did. Because he was a financial planner, a financial manager, right? Uh, uh, yeah. I think more of like a private equity kind of guy, so even higher up on that. And he, but mm-hmm. he, by the time they got married, he already had a huge net worth. So, yep. did that expand a lot more because of her? Probably. I mean, it, like a lot of his companies got uh, contracts with the uh, rail, high yep. speed rail. You know, <laughs> same same thing with Pelosi's husband. Right. Uh, same thing also with um, I think you know Mitch McConnell. Um, his wife. Yes. I, saw, I saw that eye roll. Yes. yes. You know, uh, Elaine. <laughs> Luckily, I wasn't looking at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's just a lot of graft um, that, again, me as a regular person, I would want to eliminate with a term limit amendment. And I think actually it did go to the floor for a vote. Kevin McCarthy promised it. It didn't pass. Obviously, would you expect members of Congress to shoot themselves in their own foot by limiting how often they could run for, for office? No. No. Right. Um, but people don't know. Do you know that there is a route? So it need, we need a constitutional amendment to do term limits because right. uh, there are, uh, the Constitution sets out how often, you know, or what the length of the, t- the terms are. But did you know that there's an alternative way to pass a constitutional amendment? No, I did not. Um, so if three quarters of state legislatures pass an amendment, they can make it a constitutional amendment by bypassing Congress. So right now, as it stands, you need two-thirds of both houses mm-hmm. to vote yes. You need right. a two-thirds majority, a very high bar, to pass a constitutional amendment. And that is circulated to the states where 75% of the states have to sign it mm-hmm. to ratify it. And if right. 75% ratify it, it becomes a constitutional amendment. But what a lot of people don't know is the bill can originate in one of the state houses. And ah. then if three-quarters of the state houses say, I think that's a great idea and I will pass it in my own state house, then you can pass constitutional amendments without having to rely on Congress to police themselves. And that is also what I intend to do, the internet and social media being a bully pulpit. Right. Um, once we get elected and say, okay, we're going to give Congress a chance to do this. If they don't do this, I'm going to go ahead and have the state legislatures. Do you think we can get three quarters of the states to be sick of Congress and limit their uh, terms? I do. But to, I want to play devil's advocate sure. for a minute. And, and also because I've seen this happen in California. We do have term limits on our legislators, and it's 12 years, and so they can, whether it's six assembly terms or I think it's three Senate, state Senate terms uh-huh. or, or a mixture of whatever, 12 years that they can be in the legislature. And so we've seen like with people like Mark Ridley Thomas, for example, or Kevin DeLeon, uh-huh. they do their 12 years and then they come to other, it's basically like- Musical shuffle, chairs. Yeah. But the unfortunate side effect that I would like to find a way to- change if we Um, did this nationally is that staffers end up being the ones in charge and running things because they're the ones in the office long term in in Sacramento 
They build their relationships with the lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And so basically it ends up where that assembly person or state senator ends up being kind of this figurehead right. or puppet that the, cause they can only do what, like, if their staff comes to them, here's what this bill says and means. And we're doing more than 2000 bills in one legislative session. Most of which are completely uh, unnecessary. Right. And they can't read all of them and they're depending on their staff. Well, we don't know what relationships the staff has and they don't have to fill out financial disclosure forms. Mm -hmm. We don't know like that because what you say you were Senator Alex up there, you can only make judgment based on what comes in front of your desk. And if your staff is curating what comes in front of your desk. Yeah. So that's my problem with term limits because I I do not want to empower the bureaucratic state any more than it's already empowered. So I hear you there. And so it wouldn't it wouldn't simply be term limits. So there would be a constitutional amendment, which would be the harder one to pass for Congress. But I will also author a bill. And this one simply needs a simple majority that will cap staff. Now, this is for Congress that will cap uh, congressional staff tenure to six years. And there will be a moratorium. Currently, it's only one year. So if you are a congressional staffer and you leave and you want to make a lot of bucks and go work for a lobbyist, right. it's, only, it's currently a one-year moratorium. I would make that a six-year moratorium. Ooh. So the revolving door would be going more slowly. Um, and that is actually more promising to do. So yes, I've heard you there. Um, and so that would be both for members of Congress and for staffers? So the members of Congress would have to be a separate, that would be, have to be a constitutional amendment. Right, but as far as the time before they can lobby... Um, that yes, that uh, actually I think with Congress you can uh, with a s- simple law because I believe Newt Gingrich, if I'm not mistaken, put that one year uh, right. moratorium. I would extend that to six years for members of Congress and also congressional staffers. Right. Uh, but I would uh, cap the congressional staffers' lifespan at six years for a couple of reasons. Number one. I mean, honestly, do you think Diane Feinstein was running her show, or do you think her oh, no. office staff? Yeah, there's a lot of the older ones like the, that. That, mm-mm. and and also people say, oh well, the the mastery of the subject matter will decrease if you do this. Listen, I I did residency. I did a three year residency for internal medicine. Okay, yes, we had our attending physicians overseeing us, but the bulk, I would say, eighty five percent of the teaching happened from your senior residents, and you were an intern who was taught by your second and third years, and then you became a second year and taught the interns. You became a third year and taught the interns, and then you were a full-fledged right. attending. So it can in three years, if we did that and we taught the interns for a six-year lifespan from congressional staffers, you can easily teach the new interns and then say goodbye after six years and go to someplace else. Well, and, and I know that committee staff gets paid more than just your normal congressional interns, and the bulk uh-huh. of your specialized knowledge is going to be within committee staff. But still, I know what, I mean, it's public what Congress pays. And you're not getting the best and brightest there mm-hmm. because it doesn't pay very well. Right. And so these people, then you have these people staying there and being the gatekeepers. Something has to be in it for them, basically, yeah. to be that gatekeeper, whether it's you know, free drinks or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not accusing every committee staffer of being on the take or anything, but it's just, you can see where it's a system that's set up to encourage uh, nefarious behavior yeah. instead of being fully on the up and up. Absolutely. And uh, so speaking of gatekeepers, I wanted to pivot a little bit um, to the gatekeeper of Rick Caruso, <laughs> who we discussed. So um, you may or may not know, when I started my congressional campaign, I was a no party preference. And the reason I did that is because I 
like the majority of people right now, was disenfranchised with the two-party system. Mm-hmm. Neither party spoke for right. me in its entirety. Now, granted, I've never been a Democrat. I've never thought that high taxes and larger government is the answer. <laughs> um, I was a, a California Republican, a Duke Majan Republican. You could not be Armenian in California right? in the 80s with George Duke Majan and not be a Republican. Right. And that is what the party meant to me. It meant law and order. It meant you're an immigrant. You come here. You assimilate. You learn English. You start a business. You make something of yourself. The government stays out of you your way. You work hard and you have the American dream. Exactly. You, you, you are the American dream, which is class mobility. You hit the reset button from whatever home country you come. You come here. You work your way up. And then you just make your fortune, the American dream. And so for the last 20 years, I've been quite disenfranchised with the Republican Party simply because they have also run up the national debt. They have also mm-hmm. voted to increase the debt ceiling. Um, they have started a lot of wars with dubious uh, motives, and they've not been the party of smaller government. They've been a little bit more and more intrusive in our lives. And so for that reason, I was quite disenfranchised with the Republican Party because they ceased to be the party of smaller government and m- middle-class businesses. Right. Right. Um, and they then became the, the, bu- the buddies with the lobbyists and the, the corporate interests. And so that is why initially I, I registered as a no-party preference. Um, and then after about two and a half months of no name, no party, no support, and just <laughs> funneling my own money into this, I thought, okay, you know, th- either I go bankrupt or I work for the, with the infrastructure of the Republican Party. So we did that. And then um, I had written a, a, a note in cursive. A handwritten note in cursive, uh, and I sent it to Rick Caruso's home. Um, and then uh, maybe a month later, I got an email from his gatekeeper, uh-huh. his political director. Um, and then she set up um, a you know, conversation. So we were going through, and you know, I pulled up you know, her doing my due diligence. The first thing I see on her LinkedIn profiles, she has her pronouns. <laughs> Big red flag. Right. Um, and then she's been there with Rick Caruso for two months, but then has this long list of working on Democratic campaigns previously. Okay. So we're talking and, you know, I say, yeah, I'm a fiscally conservative, socially moderate, much like Rick Caruso, been a lifelong Republican, but I'm disenfranchised. Um, And then she said, yeah, yeah. And then I said, yeah, but then I had to switch the Republican Party. Oh, what? And I I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I was no party preference, but then I just need help. I need infrastructure. Right. And I can't do this on my own. And there are 12 Democrats and I've never identified as Democrat. That's why I registered as Republican. And there was a pause. And she says, we're in this space to help Democrat. No, what did she say? She said, um, she said, we're here to help Democratic spaces. Wow. And I said, okay. And her, her countenance, her entire demeanor just turned on a dime. Um, and that was it. And that was the end. Um, yeah. So... That's what I think about Rick Caruso and his uh, entire setup. Um, listen, he's a Republican. He's just a Republican in, in Democrats' clothing right now. Well, I do know that he helped sponsor a fundraiser for George Gascon when Gascon was running the first time. And how is that smash and grab legacy <laughs> working out for you, Rick? Right, right. I mean, because it's coming to all of his properties yep. now and because it didn't start out that way, really. And, and now it, it's coming to all of his properties. So it just it baffles me that someone could vote against their self-interest so blatantly 
with that. I don't know how he thinks any Democrat policy is going to help any aspect. I mean, I, I think that about anybody, but especially someone like him who owns all of those, mm-hmm. the retail spaces. And okay, he doesn't own those stores, sure, but if he can't get people to lease them because they can't make a profit, he's going to just end up with these, you know, ghost towns. And that's not good either. So what happened um, there? I, I do know from a store owner. So in co- during COVID, when all the stores shut down, so the Americana, mm-hmm. um, his property at the uh, in Glendale, it's an open air uh, mall right. like his other properties are. Um, but then a lot of the larger stores just kind of didn't pay their leases. And, and so things, storefronts were empty. And there were some small businesses in the gallery across the street. So there's mm-hmm. a closed mall. So the gallery was completely closed. Um, and they said, well, we want to, um, you know, keep, stay open. So they actually moved over. So they were renting his storefronts, his empty storefronts, in a time when brick and mortar business was arguably stifled because of the right. shutdowns. Um, and so they were there paying their lease. And when things started getting better, um, Fairweather Caruso uh, didn't renew their leases and then kind of wow. kind of um, strung them along on month to month until which time he could get the big ticket people, Yves Saint Laurent, Gucci, Tiffany, those people to back come in. back. Yes. Um, and so he mm. weathered that storm on the backs of small business owners. Right. And strung them along until which time he could say, okay, now I got my big rich Either stores coming in. pay this amount or get out. Correct. And so um, after the interaction with his gatekeeper, mm-hmm. uh, his she, her gatekeeper, in addition to this story that I heard from people who are following our campaign, that really left a bitter taste in my mouth for Rick Caruso. Yeah. One thing that I had heard about his business practices uh, back, he built this amazing place that I can never afford to stay at um, up in Montecito yes. on the beach. And it, it had been vacant forever. A great, a great location. It went through Santa Barbara County processes for probably a decade before mm-hmm. he finally won them over. But instead of using the artisans and blue collar workers up there, uh, he and somehow Santa Barbara County let him get away with this. He brought all the union people from LA up there uh-huh. and paid them a lot more than what these people in Santa Barbara, like what their going rate was. I don't know what deal he had with labor. I'm not mm-hmm. going to try to speculate on that, but it left a bitter taste in the mouths of these guys up in Santa Barbara County because they need the work. And this is like a huge project. It's huge. Yeah. In it right there in their backyard. But he was bringing, busting people in basically to to build that and so they were not happy at all with that because they didn't think that showed a whole lot of uh commitment to that community Mm -hmm. there to just basically the whole place is like taking la and just plopping it down in montecito with a wall around it because the people who built it were all from la and the people who can afford to stay there are generally not from santa barbara county either right and so yeah they're happy to have somewhat of the tax dollars but of course, the, the deal that he struck with Santa Barbara County and Montecito, he got a lot of tax credit yeah. for taking this property that had been vacant and kind of a blight and rehabbing it, which yeah, I, I do agree with that kind of thing. But you should have to use local labor. Reinvest it in the community that it came right, from. Yeah. Right. I, and so I just, I can't make sense of him. It, so many things just kind of seem to conflict with each other. So I'm not quite sure. And whenever I see that with somebody, I, I approach with caution. Like I keep at an arm's length 
I if agree. I can't figure it out. I, I agree. And I think he personifies you know, the things that are going on in Washington where people are there not for us, but about themselves. You know, Rick Caruso does Rick Caruso. Right. And Rick Caruso is in it for the, the long game for Rick Caruso as Kevin McCarthy is in it for his long game, as Gavin Newsom's is in it for his long <laughs> game. Um, you know, and I was not a L.A. City resident to vote for mayor, right? So I'm a Glendale City resident. Um, but, you know, he lost by a sliver against Karen Bass. But from what I hear, there were quite a number of Republicans who felt slighted by him, felt abandoned after by him. No, no, no. During. during. And that is why they didn't vote. And if there were if there was a larger Republican turnout for this turncoat, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, he probably would have won. So, you know, Pennywise and Pound Foolish. Right. Had you not switched to a Democrat to get more votes, did you lose more of the tried and true Republican vote that way? Unclear. I think he did because I, I had I had heard of different media things that he would not go on, mm-hmm. even if they weren't necessarily conservative media. If his team told him, oh, that's more of a conservative audience, mm-hmm. he didn't go. So if you haven't courted that demographic, why are they going to, and in L.A., it can take forever to go drive somewhere to vote. Right. Why are they going to take that time out of their day for you? So I, I, I completely agree with you of somebody of that nature, of that stature. Um, greeting it with caution. Right. I, I completely agree, which is why I'm kind of eager to see whether the rumors of him running for governor in 2026 are that because, oh, I will step up and run against the man um, as, as a man of the people. I, I definitely would. But we'll see. We'll see what the future I had holds. not heard that rumor yet. But I mean, it would make sense because I was just telling someone over the weekend that I haven't heard of a good, like a really good Dem candidate. I've, I've, obviously, Tony Thurmond has said that he's running and Eleni Kunalakis, uh-huh. who I have a lot of dirt on, uh-huh. um, has said she's running. Okay. Uh, so, But neither of them are really known amongst people. And especially for Thurmond, the way that he is known is probably not very good. Right. Eleni, actually, the, 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 yeah, the lieutenant governor, she's, she's not famous. And I would say that Tony Thurmond is infamous mm-hmm. uh, among parents, uh, especially by, you know, being uh, silenced, not silenced, held to his speaking limit by Sonia Shaw um, at the <laughs> uh, school district meeting. <laughs> exactly. And there's not, it, Gavin's done such a good job. And this is kind of goes to my thoughts on McCarthy, too. Gavin's done such a good job of not bringing other people along with him as he rose through the ranks. Uh-huh. Kamala, kind of, but I think they're more frenemies. Uh, that there's not really a just when it was Jerry Brown, you knew that Newsom was the heir apparent. Right. There's not that heir apparent there mm. with Gavin, and he has not uh, built up a network or a, a bench among the Democrats because it looks like he's all, always seen it as a Game of Thrones kind of thing and just kind of isolated himself, attached himself to people above him who uh-huh. could help him get somewhere, but not building something. And I'm Maybe I'm hopelessly naive, but I come from a leadership school where I don't want to just get success for myself. I want to help as many other people Mm -hmm. around me become successful and build kind of a pipeline of investigative reporter gens. Yeah. Because how much would the left hate that (laughs) if I was able to mentor 100 people to be investigative journalists like me? But it doesn't seem like some of these McCarthy or other people think that way. They think anyone who is, smart or innovative or ambitious is a threat to them Mm -hmm. and so they just destroy them right they eat their young yes so gavin doesn't have 
really any, like if you look at Villaragosa, mm-hmm. he's not going to come back out of whatever he's done. Kevin DeLeon, he's not going to, because he ran against Feinstein before. Yeah. He, there's no way that man can think of running for statewide office. Yeah. So I, I can't even think of who else uh, had, had maybe been a statewide thing. I know Lorena Gonzalez wanted to run for secretary of state and other things. You look Meghan at- Markle. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> we learned last week that you know, parody is worse than reality. <laughs> well, I think if you say Meghan Markle three times quickly, then she'll actually appear and maybe make a run. For Don't it. say knows? it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so Jennifer, you had touched on, you said, you know, the, 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 my school, the school where I'm from. So I started out in this whole journalism space, just writing aggregated content probably 12 years ago. But then that morphed into working with uh, nonprofit organizations, advocacy organizations, specifically Firearms Policy Coalition, uh, where I would read the bills in the legislature and then try to find out the three to four bullet points about why Alex should care about this certain bill. Because as you, we've said multiple times, there's uh, more than 2,000 bills a session generally in Sacramento. There's no way that the average citizen can just keep up with what's happening or why they should care. And that's why they get away with so much of the junk in California. So kind of learn there how to translate to the legislative speak into normal human being speak. So went through all of that, worked with some congressional candidates, got some good wins. We got Steve Knight into Congress, uh, outspent seven to one, I think it was, and he won by seven points. Mm. So it was a pretty huge win. Then I uh, started just writing more at Red State and started writing about local Things. So Red State, for the people who don't know, Red State is part of the Town Hall Media family. We're owned by Salem Media. Town Hall Media has Red State, Town Hall, Twitchy, Bearing Arms, PJ Media, and Hot Air. So we've got a whole bunch of conservative content there. Radio shows also? Radio shows. Salem owns over 1,500 talk stations. So anywhere it's like here, it's AM870, The Answer mm-hmm. is their local LA channel. So we appear on their stations as well talking about our our stories. So Red State had been more of just um, a blog. It actually started out as a blog and then had a lot of policy opinion paper, opinion writing. Then we would get into some news aggregation, but I wanted to do more original content. And so I had started looking into my congresswoman, my then congresswoman, Katie Hill, mm. because she came from the homeless industrial complex into Congress. And I had heard some things about PATH the the nonprofit here in Los Angeles that weren't too um, on the up and up about her management there. So I was trying to get a bunch of documents about that. I'd had some tips from locals. And so while I, and having to do with campaign contributions and PATH and things that she did there. So as I was going, looking into that was when I uh, received photographs of her and her staffer um, naked and doing things. So, and, and also text messages. And about between her, her staffer, and her husband that showed that they were in this throuple relationship. So it was basically uh, a multi-person committed relationship. Uh, but the problem was this woman was working for her, was more than a year or more than a decade younger than her, showed basically where she had uh, kind of groomed, and I hate to use that word now because it's become such a negative buzzword, but what else is it when you're someone who's kind of a star and it's someone who 
looks up at you, who's a decade younger. And you're subordinate. And you pluck them up to, you know, then she hired her as she moved her into her uh, home. Right. To become basically a second wife to her husband. And the woman was still working for her at the time that I got these text messages and everything. But Katie had gone to Washington, had broken up with her husband and with this girl, yet the girl was still working for her. And then there were texts saying, oh, so we're going to be at this event this weekend. Yeah. And then afterward, the girl saying, look, I told you that I'm fine working with you still, but that I need to have arm's length distance. So when you asked me to apply sunscreen to you in front of everyone, it was like not a cool thing to do. And I'm sitting there reading this going, this is textbook sexual harassment. Right. I don't know why people think that this would be okay. And there were other texts about Katie uh, taking too much of her medication, like Ambien or Zoloft or whatever, and drinking, and then missing her flights back and forth to the district. And so I, I'm looking through all this, and it's beginning of October of 2019, and then Elijah Cummings, who is the chair of oversight for the Dems, dies. Mm. Katie was his vice chair. They were looking at starting an impeachment inquiry into Trump at that time. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know who else received all of these texts and pictures, but if a lot of people did, this is great blackmail material to make her do things that someone wants her to do, like maybe right. not the thing that she wants to do. So I went ahead and published that uh, and started a firestorm. And, and I had no idea it would work out this way, but she resigned nine days later. And so that kind of started my career as an investigative journalist. But I had done like some, I spoke about uh, Caruso. I mm -hmm. had done opposition research as a political consultant before. So some of that stuff I had looked up on him was in the context of opposition research. So I had the research skills and I worked as a court reporter, a court stenographer for 20 years when I lived in North Carolina, in and out of criminal and civil courtrooms. So that's where I learned, I think, the bones of investigative journalism, because you're learning how to present a case, what primary sources are, like how to not look at hearsay and put everything together to basically convict, you know, in air quotes, somebody of something that, that they did wrong. So since then, I've been working on stuff within California, just trying to, I mean, there are never enough hours in the day to go through the corruption here. And, and you're, you're learning, uh, learning by doing with the lawyers. It's like an episode of Suits. We can get Meghan Markle on board. <laughs> you said her name three times now since I've been in your presence. That means she's going to manifest. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is, that is crazy. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. That is crazy background. I mean, I wish I had something as interesting and salacious, but I'm just, I was geeky medicine. But wow, that's amazing. So you were single-handedly responsible for opening up that seat, which now is um, occupied by Mike Garcia. Correct. Yes. Uh, who um, uh, Jessica Patterson claims, um, t takes the credit for flipping that seat. Yeah. When the credit was due to the woman who discredited uh, the woman who was there in the first place. And I, I'm not going to say that the party didn't work hard on getting volunteers out there, but I do get a little upset at the continual credit taking, especially when I still owe Harmeet Dillon $83,000 for the court case that resulted. If they want to take the credit, they can pay off my legal bill. Wow. You're, I'll just leave that out there. So you, hang on a minute. So 83 to protect yourself in court, you're saying. So please, please 
Let's delve into that. So Katie, well, Katie accused this of revenge porn. And Matt Gates even went on TV at the time saying that whoever, whoever this reporter was, was bad because she published revenge porn on Katie. So it was a little awkward when I met Matt the other huh. month. <laughs> I see. But, um, Katie filed suit against me individually. I was not an employee at that time, so I didn't have the protection of my employer. Okay. And there's no regular insurance that covers something like that. It's a very specialized insurance that I didn't know existed, so uh-huh. I didn't have it. And there you go. Uh, and also she sued Salem, and I had col- uh, collaborated with Daily Mail on their story about it. Okay. So she sued Daily Mail. Anyway, it came down. We, uh, we gave Katie's lawyer. You know, all these legal scholars said that was a stupid lawsuit. It's definitely constitutional. It's a protected First Amendment. Right journalism was it libel i i don't understand she sued for defamation for um distribution of of basically a revenge porn kind of case of distributing these images that were taken without her consent she says and um tell gary hart that on the monkey business (laughs) for the love of god i forget the exact because i've tried to put all out of mind because it was a very turbulent time in my life when she filed suit the day that the first big hearing we had in it uh, my partner of 10 years had passed away two weeks before, mm. and my granddaughter had just been born. So we went to court. We told her, meet Dylan, thank God, she took on my case uh-huh. um, with just a small down payment, knowing that as like a single grandma that I'm not going to be able to afford a bunch. And we filed an anti-slap action okay. on them because here's a member of Congress using the legal system to harass, or a former member at that point, but still, to harass a journalist in a protected First Amendment activity. And there really wasn't a lot of case law on this revenge porn aspect mm-hmm. at the time. So we filed that and we gave Katie's attorneys the out before saying, hey, look, we don't think you're going to win on this. You know, legal scholars have said you're not going to. Let's, we'll, if you drop it now, even yeah. though Jennifer's already paid $10,000 in legal fees, we'll just let it go. But if you make us go to these motions, it's going to cost a lot more. Well, they did, and she lost. Can you not recoup that? So my legal bills were about 140000 at that time. But then we went to ask for legal bills in order for that. And yeah. we did get an order for her to pay $83,000 to her meet. Okay. Then she declared bankruptcy. Of course she did. Mm-hmm. And we're still monitoring that uh, bankruptcy because I already knew um, through things that I received, sorry, I'm trying to make sure I choose my words yes, carefully, of course. Uh, that I received during all my investigative stories of Katie. I knew what her assets were at uh-huh. the time and she was going through a divorce and basically all the assets were gone by the time that divorce was over. Yeah. So she, there wasn't, there's was nothing I could go attach any of her property or anything like that. She's now had a baby with the Playboy reporter who was covering the story. Mm. This, this reporter went out and made up this whole conspiracy theory between me and the RNC and published that. And that was part of the allegations in Katie's lawsuit against me, but never said, Hey, I'm banging this chick yeah. at the, like at this time. And so now they've had a baby, but she lives out here again with her mom says in her bankruptcy, she paid $1,700 a month in cash to her mom at, for rent. So Okay. And that she also did not list shares in this very profitable medical marijuana business in her bankruptcy filing. So it's just all shady, but it's one of those things where you look at the pros and cons and 
what you'd have to put in to get potentially something out on the other end. Yeah. And you just go, karma's going to have to get them. And thankfully, you know, Harmeet isn't pressuring me to pay off the bill at this moment. She's not going to go, you know, try to take me to court on it. I'm paying her as I can. I have a GoFundMe that, you know, I just pay her bits here and there. But back to that point, you know, if the Republican Party wants to claim that, they haven't paid nearly what I've paid. I mean, sorry, going off on a tangent a bit. No, but that's fine. That's just... I received death threats as soon as that started happening that I've had that I've archived. Uh, some one of her staffers a year later tweeted something that he, uh, I just went to the gun show. And the first thing I'm going to do is find Jennifer Van Lahr and blow her head off her shoulders. And this person lived in another state at the time. But this, lived, is the, this is the Democrat, the party of inclusion. Yeah. Okay. Lived, but the state where they lived is where my they lived close to where my brother was. And I'm thinking, uh-huh. you know, my last name isn't exactly common. Right. <laughs> if this dude ends up running into my family. Uh, I had my my youngest son was, I think, 15 at the time, mm-hmm. 14, 16. I, he had to go to school in a town because, you know, she was my congresswoman. So, yeah. We lived in that district and, you know, people looking at him differently or weirdly. My daughter-in-law was harassed at work by some of Katie's people, even though my kids go by their dad's name and not my maiden name, which is what I go by. Enough people in town knew who my kids were and who their wives were that our whole family was harassed for a long time. And then the financial on top of it. So it's actually really insulting that they would do nothing but gain from this and take the credit and just hang me out to dry. And that's what they do the the small, you know, the regular people, the small guy, right? Right. They they just need to step on something or somebody to get up that ladder. It doesn't matter if it's your head. And I, I wouldn't mind the party because, like I said, they did. It wasn't like it was just going to be delivered to yeah. Mike Garcia because Christy Smith did get in there and run. But and so they but that's what they should do in that situation. And they did what they were supposed to do. But don't just act like you weren't given a huge gift, because I don't think had this not come out, they weren't going to beat Katie Hill that year. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's a they the Democrats are focusing on Mike Garcia as a vulnerable um, seat Mm -hmm. that they can try to flip. And yeah, arguably your um, reporting is what got him that seat. And if you look at it, and I like Mike a lot, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, so I'm not trying to speak for him at all or anything, but I've just observed, I don't really see him taking part in the CAGOP stuff and all of the stuff that's happening here. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that's a reflection of the uselessness of the party. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I've been a delegate for a few years, so I'm not trying to, to just crap on people. But I'm saying that we have a lot of work to do. And part of it is something that you and I have talked about before, which is the money just being siphoned out of here, hoovered out of here, basically, uh, to different states. Because people on the national level, including Kevin McCarthy, have said, we can't win in California. So don't donate here. Donate Donate to these certain organizations, and we'll make sure that it gets used on races we can win. There's a lot of money. And uh, a friend of mine that works kind of in entertainment, but ended up at Donald Trump's fundraiser on around the CAGOP convention Uh this year. And Beverly Hills says, why is the LA County GOP broke? Do you know how much money is in LA? I said, I do. I do. And I said, so why aren't these people that paid $11,000 to go see Donald Trump 
um, donating anything to California. Donald Trump saying he's going to save California. Well, you know how he can save it? By telling his people to give money to the races in California that need it. I mean, it is, I've encountered this and also you with your reporting have encountered this. And this is the California spirit, right? It's individualism. Mm -hmm. It's going out there um, and doing all that hard work yourself uh, because there are minimal, possibly no resources to help you. Um, and you're just trying to chart your own path as a pioneer. Uh, and that is also why I just want to remind people who are watching, you know, Jennifer had enough. I've had enough. You've had enough. Um, this is where we rise. This is where we say that the existing architecture of the country, of how things are organized and how people profit, co- corporations profit, and the people who want to go up the ladder profiteering off of it, um, we're not going to get any help, or we should simply assume that we're not going to get right. any help. And then when we actually do end up coming out the other side successfully, everybody's going to come knocking. <laughs> um, you can gloat if you want to, like Donald Trump does. Um, but yeah, I just feel like that's, is in the end, what we're going to do. And I, and I did not know your story. So um, when my campaign makes it through the primary and we just go all out, I am definitely going to um, have people listen to the story of Jennifer Van Lahr. Well, thank you. But I do want to tell, especially the listeners and people, you don't have to be a Republican to support Alex. You don't have to subscribe to the party or anything like that. And the party is not necessarily going to help every single candidate because the party is people. It's the people that create all of those volunteers. So the organizations like Glendale Parent, Mm. all of these grassroots organizations, I do have to give a shout out to Tim O'Reilly, who's the new chair of the LA County GOP. He's got a huge job in front of him trying to turn around something that's essentially been bankrupt or insolvent and has had historically a bad relationship or zero relationship with activists or or various communities. He's trying to change that. And part of his philosophy that you've probably heard if you've been to any events Mm -hmm. is, look, we don't want to recreate the wheel. If in Glendale or Pasadena or others, you have activist groups that are getting work done and, and act mobilizing people and giving them tasks. We don't want to go create a competitor organization for like We want to support what you're doing and help get all these networks of the grassroots things together so that if there's groups of parents' rights activists in various parts of your potential district where they could all be cohesive in, in helping you to get elected rather than the party trying to, from scratch, start mm-hmm. an infrastructure where something already exists. So I think we have to be smart about it too and use that innovative California spirit and say, okay, where do we all, what are the assets we already have? Mm-hmm. We have people who've had enough. We have some various grassroots organizations in various cities and even like California Policy Center or PERC or mm-hmm. things like that. And where can we all plug in to be that change that we, that we want, want to be? Because ballots are going to drop the beginning of February for yep. your race. Where is everyone going to get together and make sure that they're getting their ballot in and five to 10 of their friends who might not have already planned to vote, mm-hmm. especially because we know that there's so many people, okay, it's a D, D plus 27 registration right. in your district. Well, that doesn't mean all those people vote. Correct. What percentage of those people turn out is the, the key. And so if we get a gr- all of the Republicans turn out, a good number of the no party preference, and I would... I would bet that you're the kind of candidate that can get some people who are registered Democrat. And Mm -hmm. I think especially in your area, you're going to have people who work in entertainment or other things who stay registered Democrat 
because they need to for work. Right. Because they're afraid that someone's going to look up their registration that will still vote for you. And th that, that is the hope. Um, again, as you noted, right, you don't have to be Republican. You don't have to be Democrat. Um, it's simply getting a coalition of people together. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, this, w when I speak to people, there are a variety of hot button issues, crime, homelessness, $7 mm -hmm. gas, um, um, the open border, the fentanyl crisis, the quality of education and the failing test scores in California, parental rights and being shut out of the education. So there are different hot button issues for different people. Um, I mean, when we were together in West Hollywood for um, my fundraiser a mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago, right? Parents' rights is there. They, they know about it, but it's really, you know, why am I paying 2,500 bucks a month for the studio apartment in West Hollywood? And I walk out and there's a homeless person on a tent and then right. somebody's going to smash and grab the store, my, my favorite store, and they're going to go bankrupt. So everybody has a different hot button issue. And we have a lot of disenfranchised Democrats, mm -hmm. disenfranchised Republicans, and disenfranchised independents who have different hot button issues. And I think we've reached a turning point where, um, and again, me, I don't play identity politics. I am gay. I don't lead with my gay. But I find it interesting when there are Democrats who find out that I'm running as Republican and, you know, have a scowl on their face. And when I say, oh, yeah, my husband and I, oh, you're gay. And then suddenly that makes everything all better and all acceptable. You know, I mean, they don't say that somehow you hate yourself. And that's correct. <laughs> I mean, we, we were talking about the the, the, the parents rights in, in Glendale. Yeah. Where it's big. You know, the the parents are immediately called uh, white nationalists and homophobes because they wanted the school open during the shutdown and they're saying, what is all this, you know, gay pride stuff that you're talking to my, my uh, eight-year-old with and not right. informing me about. I just want to know what the curriculum is about. And they're suddenly white nationalists and homophobes. You know, and so I go and I said, just well, turn your kid over to the indoctrination center and don't ask questions. Exactly. <laughs> and so they come to me and I, I say, I don't think your opinion is unreasonable that you want to know what the curriculum is about and you want more involvement. And they say, well, yeah, please, you know, we'll get behind you because nobody's, nobody's going to accuse you as a son of immigrants to be a white nationalist. Right. Oh, and, they will. Uh, they will. <laughs> and, and nobody's going to accuse the gay guy of being a homophobe. They'll just call you self-loathing. They'll call me self-loathing, yes, which is my, <laughs> my husband's handle on his. I think he's called self-loathing gay trader James is what, is what he calls himself <laughs> on his Twitter handle. Um, uh, I think we've uh, ticked off all the people that we're going to um, offend during this conversation, unless you can think of more. <laughs> I think I'll stop there for today. Just catch me tomorrow. I'll find um, other people to offend. I was going to ask, are there any upcoming events, upcoming anything that you would like to remind um, our listeners about? I mean, the biggest thing I want to remind everyone about, because it's going to come quickly, is February ballots. Yep. Okay. Just make sure that you're... I, I think everyone needs to be starting now to find those candidates that they want to vote for and start doing things to get them publicity, to get money, mm -hmm. to do things to help them. That's the biggest thing everyone needs to do. Yeah. So uh, just a reminder, in, in my race, for example, I think there are now 16 people, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so the you can vote on any of the 16 in March 2024, but there will only be two in November of 2024. So if you want a choice of whom you can vote for in November 2024, you need to uh, submit your ballot for March 5, 2024. And then, Jen, how, when do they send, when does the state send out the, uh, those ballots? They start those out, send those out about 30 days prior. So beginning of February, they'll send them out. 
And I know that I personally don't trust putting it in the mail, Mm -hmm. but I take mine to a drop box right in front of my city hall. Or because if we have early ballot or I think in L.A. County, it's like 10 days you have for voting early voting that you can just take it in. Yeah. And just make sure that you get that done early, because just like in 2022, we ended up having that big rainstorm on Election Day. And then they had, was it the shelter in place alert that went out? Yep. You never know what's going to happen to prevent you from from getting to the the polling place. So get that in as soon as you can. Um, and what I wanted to remind our listeners about, uh, we had a great uh, Oktoberfest celebration in Montrose. Uh, we had our uh, beer fest within a beer fest called Doctoberfest. Um, I loved seeing everybody there. Our next uh, event is going to be Alex Teeny, uh, where we have um, adult beverages uh, in the evening time in Glendale. Uh, so if you want to know more, just go on our uh, Instagram page and you can register for Alex Teeny and get the invite. Um, otherwise, Jennifer Van Lar, thank you very much uh, for coming on Enough Talk. Thank you. And I can't wait to be visiting you in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Jen. Thanks. (laughs) 